Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The Biden administration keeps insisting that they care about Palestinian lives. If, if that was true, they would close the spigot of lethal weapons to Israel instead of circumventing congressional processes to rush them through. I, I think we need to end the charade that this is just an Israeli war and the U.S. is a you know, hapless observer. This is a U.S.-Israeli joint operation, and that's what we should call it. The United States is becoming increasingly isolated as it continues to oppose calls for a Gaza ceasefire while sending more munitions to Israel. We'll speak to investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. Plus, we look at Israel's war on journalists. We spent seven weeks investigating the killing of our colleague, Reuters visuals journalist Isam Abdullah. That investigation determined that an Israeli tank stationed just inside of Israeli territory fired two Israeli-made shells in quick succession at a group of clearly identified journalists in southern Lebanon in an attack that international law experts say could constitute a war crime. We'll speak to the Reuters bureau chief for Lebanon, who investigated the killing of her colleague, Aysam Abdullah. And we'll go to the campus of Haverford College in Pennsylvania, to speak with Kinan Abdel Hamid, one of the three Palestinian students shot over Thanksgiving weekend in Burlington, Vermont. We'll also speak with a Haverford student organizer who took part in a campus sit-in in support of a Gaza ceasefire. She's the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reports Israeli attacks on Gaza have killed 200 Palestinians in the past 24 hours. Among the dead are at least 20 people killed in overnight air raids on Rafah, near the southern border with Egypt, where nearly half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million is sheltering from Israel's unrelenting bombardment. Their misery was compounded Wednesday as the area was hit with heavy rains and cold winds. These are Palestinians forced to live in a tent city, an Al-Mawasi, in southern Gaza, which Israel's designated as the so-called safe zone. Children sleep in the tent, while some adults have no choice but to sleep on the streets. There's no food, no water. The children lack milk and diapers. The situation is dire, with no sanitary conditions or toilets. I have four children with gastrointestinal diseases and flu. My youngest son has a cold, but we don't have any medicine. I have never felt as helpless and miserable in my life as I do now. The United Nations warns Gaza faces a public health disaster. Lynn Hastings is the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for the occupied Palestinian territories. We've got a textbook formula for epidemics and a public health disaster. 
This is in part, of course, because the shelters have long ago exceeded their full capacity uh, with people lining up for hours just to get to a toilet, one toilet available for hundreds of people. You can imagine what the sanitation conditions are like as a result. The World Health Organization says there have been 360,000 cases of infectious diseases recorded in Gaza shelters. That includes meningitis, jaundice, chickenpox, lice, scabies, upper respiratory tract infections and diarrhea, a leading cause of death for young children. The World Food Program says 83 percent of households in southern Gaza are going hungry. In the north, that figure is 97 percent. In the occupied West Bank, Israel's military has killed at least 11 Palestinians since Tuesday as it carries out its most intense raid since Hamas's surprise attack on October 7th. On Wednesday, Israeli soldiers raided the Freedom Theater in Jenin, a renowned cultural institution whose mission is to fight for Palestinian justice, equality and self-determination. Two of the theater's producers, Ahmed Tubasi and Mustafa Sheta, were reportedly taken away by Israeli troops. British Foreign Secretary David Cameron says the United Kingdom will deny visas to Israeli settlers who've committed violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. The U.S. recently announced similar visa restrictions. This comes as the Biden administration delayed the planned sale of 27,000 U.S.-made M-16 rifles to Israel over concerns they could be used in attacks by West Bank settlers against Palestinians. Israel's far-right national security minister Itamar Ben-Gavir ordered police not to arrest Israelis who commit violence in the West Bank, where more than 280 Palestinians, including 64 children, have been killed since October 7th. Meanwhile, The Washington Post has confirmed that Israel used U.S.-supplied white phosphorus in attacks on southern Lebanon. White phosphorus poses a high risk of excruciating burns and lifelong suffering, and its use as an incendiary weapon in civilian areas is a war crime, which under U.S. law should have implications for future military aid to Israel. The Washington Post investigation found white phosphorus attacks left at least four people hospitalized and forced the evacuation of the town of in southern Lebanon. In Washington, D.C., State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller addressed the reports. Any time that we provide items like white phosphorus or really anything to another military, we do it with the expectation that it will be used uh, for legitimate purposes and in full keeping with uh, international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict. So we're looking into this and, and looking for additional information. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has urged President Biden to end unconditional assistance to Israel's military, saying the United States is complicit in a mass atrocity in Gaza. In a letter to the White House, Sanders urged Biden to slash his request for U.S. military aid to Israel by more than $10 billion, writing, quote, Israel's military campaign will be remembered among some of the darkest chapters of our modern history, and it's being done with bombs and equipment produced and provided by the United States and heavily subsidized by American taxpayers, unquote. Bernie Sanders' comments came as the Senate Wednesday approved a record $886 billion military spending bill with bipartisan support. The House is expected to pass the bill as soon as today. Meanwhile, 
Al Jazeera has obtained a letter signed by 139 staffers at the Homeland Security Department denouncing Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and other top officials' response to Israel's assault. The letter, dated November 22nd, reads, quote, DHS leadership has seemingly turned a blind eye to the bombing of refugee camps, hospitals, ambulances and civilians, unquote. Russia launched a barrage of drone attacks on southern Ukraine overnight, wounding at least 11 people, including three children, and damaging port infrastructure in the Odessa region, as well as the Danube River, close to the Romanian border. The attacks came as Russia's military said Russian air defenses shot down nine Ukrainian drones headed towards Moscow just hours ahead of the start of a year-end news conference held by President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Hungary's far-right prime minister, Viktor Orban, has arrived at a European Union summit in Brussels, where he's promised to block Ukraine's bid to join the EU, as well as a deal to send an additional $54 billion worth of aid to Ukraine. This comes after the European Commission tried to soften Orban's opposition by releasing more than $11 billion in funding to Hungary it had previously withheld after determining Orban's government failed to uphold the rule of law. In the United States, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case on the abortion pill mifepristone, the most widely used method of abortion in the United States. In August, the Fifth Circuit Court sided with a right-wing Texas judge who argued the FDA improperly eased regulations on the pill to make it more accessible and that it should only be used up to seven weeks into a pregnancy and only issued in person. The Biden administration said the ruling, quote, threatens to undermine the FDA's scientific independent judgment and would reimpose outdated restrictions on access to safe and effective abortion medication, unquote. For now, mifepristone remains available through telemedicine, mail delivery and via pharmacies pending the Supreme Court's decision, which is expected by the end of June next year. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a challenge to the felony obstruction statute that's been used by the Justice Department to charge over 300 people in connection with the January 6th Capitol insurrection, including Donald Trump. The court's decision could invalidate convictions against those involved in the insurrection and hamper special counsel Jack Smith's case against Trump. Separately, justices are considering the special counsel's request to expedite consideration of Trump's claim of presidential immunity. In related news, CNN's published recordings of former Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbro revealing Trump was told about the fake elector scheme to keep him in office and informed by lawyer Jim Troopas that he'd lost the state of Wisconsin. The revelations come as part of the interviews with Michigan state prosecutors. Clear that um, Troops personally told the president there was zero hope for Wisconsin. As part of this message, I, I think crafted to try to get him to concede, to just you know, give up this, this, this long-shot challenge. There was a conscious effort to um, deflect him from a sense of any possibility that he could pull out the election. Kenneth Chesbro, who's been dubbed the architect of the false electors plot, is cooperating with investigations in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona and Nevada. In October, he pleaded guilty in Georgia's sweeping election subversion case. House Republicans approved a resolution authorizing an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Republicans accused Biden of abusing his position to advance his family's business interests. A probe into the allegations has not returned any evidence. Democratic Congress member Jamie Raskin, ranking member of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, said, quote, everyone knows that the floundering Biden impeachment probe is designed to give Donald Trump something to say when it's pointed out he's been twice impeached and is a proven fraudster, sexual assailant and 
defamer of women who now faces 91 felony charges in federal and state court, unquote. This comes as Hunter Biden made rare public comments Wednesday. The president's son defied a subpoena from House Republicans and instead spoke to press in front of the Capitol. For six years, I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. Republicans said they would move to hold Hunter Biden in contempt for defying their summons. He says he'll testify publicly, but not privately. And Tesla has recalled software from nearly all of its two million vehicles on U.S. roads after regulators found the electric car manufacturer failed to ensure that drivers remain attentive while using autopilot, a system that can drive autonomously. This follows a series of accidents involving self-driving Teslas, some of them fatal. Meanwhile, in Sweden, garbage has begun piling up at Tesla's workshops after a major transport workers union said it would stop collecting waste in support of Swedish mechanics who've been on strike since October to protest the anti-union policies of Tesla and its billionaire CEO, Elon Musk. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are calling for Israel to be investigated for committing war crimes for targeting journalists. The groups have both called for an official investigation into an October 13th Israeli tank strike that killed Reuters journalist Assam Abdullah while he was reporting in southern Lebanon with a group of six other journalists. One of the journalists who survived the attack, Christina Assi of Agence France Presse, AFP, had to have her leg amputated. She's still hospitalized. Human Rights Watch said it, quote, found no evidence of a military target near the journalist's location, unquote. Reuters also conducted its own investigation and concluded that Assam Abdullah was killed by an Israeli tank shell. This is an excerpt of a short video report produced by Agence France Presse. It includes interviews with AFP reporters Christina Assi in her hospital bed and Dylan Collins. Reuters video journalist Issam Abdallah was killed on Friday, October 13th, when a shell hit him. Six other journalists are wounded. Among them, AFP photographer Christina Assi, who suffers serious injuries, later needing an amputation of her right leg. Everything gets white, and I lose sensation in my legs. I saw Christina on the ground, uh, and I immediately ran to her, and we were hit the second time. There was no Hamas around us, no Hezbollah around us. Seven journalists wearing uh, flak jackets, wearing helmets, everyone with press written on their chest. There's no way they didn't know that we were press. And we were attacked by Israel twice, not once. That was AFP reporter Christina Assi, who lost her leg after being hit by an Israeli tank shell October 13th in the same attack that killed Reuters journalist Assam Abdullah. And this is an excerpt from a video made by Amnesty International documenting how it determined that Assam Abdullah was killed by an Israeli tank shell. In many cases, when we work on conflicts, 
the weapon can directly lead us to uh, perpetrators. This is the key piece of evidence. My colleague, who is our weapons analyst, knew immediately what this weapon is. It was a 120 millimeter tank round, and that confirmed that it was the Israeli military that fired on the journalists because Hezbollah and the armed groups in South Lebanon don't use those kinds of weapons. And more importantly, we did identify this weapon before being used by the Israeli forces in the context of uh, different strikes on Gaza. So this is at least the third time where we are able to link this type of weapon with uh, Israeli forces. An excerpt of a video by Amnesty International. We're joined now by Maya Jubeli. She is the Reuters bureau chief for Lebanon. She co-wrote the new Reuters special report, Israeli tank fire killed Reuters journalist Assam Abdullah in Lebanon. Maya, welcome to Democracy Now! Our condolences to you and your colleagues on the loss of Assam. If you can talk about what exactly you found, talk about that day, as we just heard these other reporters who survived the attack, one having lost her leg, uh, discuss it. Thank you, Amy, for, for having us on. And of course, Isam's loss is one that we continue to feel every single day in in the Reuters Beirut Bureau and across the media, the media teams across Lebanon. Um, that day, I mean, ironically and, and very sadly, it was Friday the 13th, and Isam had been in the south uh, covering Israeli shelling on Lebanese territory for, for a few days by that point. Um, and he's a very seasoned journalist. So as you as you have reported yourself as, as well on this on this show in the past, Isam had a lot of conflict experience. He did everything right, along with the colleagues with whom he was on, on that day. They were wearing press helmets. They were wearing vests that had press written on them. Um, they, they were in an open area in which they could be clearly identified by all of the, obviously, the Israeli drone activity above, the Israeli helicopter activity around them, um, that they could be clearly identified as, as press. Um, and that evening, it was really as, as the sun was, was setting, um, that team of journalists, there were seven of them there in total on that, on that hilltop, uh, were hit twice, uh, 37 seconds apart, first by, um, first by an Israeli tank shell that, that hit Isam and, and, and killed Isam immediately, and 37 seconds later by another tank shell that hit uh, the vehicle that had been driven by the two Al Jazeera journalists that were also going live from that location. Um, and, I, and really, it was the, the experts that, that we spoke to at the end of our investigation after presenting them with the evidence that we had gathered, you know, noting that there were two strikes in such quick succession at a team of journalists that could be so clearly identified uh, that that warrants, you know, the you know the calling this a violation of international humanitarian law and possibly amounting to a war crime. So talk about this. I mean, you've got Al Jazeera, you've got AFP, Agence France Presse, you've got Reuters. Um, Assam had just set up what like an hour before this live feed. Okay. That people all over the world were watching. I talked to another Reuters journalist who said he was watching and suddenly just this strike trying to figure out what had taken place. So in a sense, he actually filmed his own death, Isa. 
Um, yes, and I think that's that is that is the ultimate kind of you know he 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 was really bearing witness to everything that was happening in in southern Lebanon, um, and Isam himself is from southern Lebanon, and so um, you know it is it is such a testament to the power of of his of his work and of his job that really it was it was him and the feeds of other journalists that were there in in the area that provided such an important piece of evidence for us as, as we were investigating exactly what, what happened. I mean, um, in the immediate aftermath, you know, we were we were gathering the footage from different journalists who were there. We were also gathering what Isam had filmed himself on his on his camera and on his and on his phone. And it was so difficult to go through that that evidence knowing that he had really documented um, such important such important evidence of what had taken place that day. And can you talk about the tank shell? Um, the two tank shells that um, injured and killed the journalists um, and how you were able to identify them. We just heard clips from Amnesty uh, and AFP and how precise they were, as opposed to a dumb bomb that's being used, for example, in Gaza in almost half the cases. Absolutely. So what we what we did in the immediate aftermath, the, the attack was on a Friday. Um, by Sunday, we were trying to gain access to the site at, at where, where Isam was killed. There was ongoing shelling in the area, so it was very difficult for us to be able to to go and to, and to collect evidence. But we were able to, to get to the site and to spend a few minutes there, essentially just, just picking up what we thought was what we thought could be shrapnel so that we could get it tested. Um, we later on then also obtained another you know, the, the, the tail which is the biggest piece of evidence that that that, that we had, um, and these were taken to a lab in in the Hague. Um, we had other analysts looking at them at the same time visually and being able to kind of identify the features of these different bits of shrapnel visually to tell us what they think it might be. Um, the lab was able to test them from from a chemical um, perspective to, to test you know what chemical components were were there, and these independent analytical processes came to the same conclusion, which is that this is an Israeli-made tank, um, as you as you noted in the in, in the introduction as well. Um, it's uh, it's made by an Israeli weapons manufacturer, and it is fired from uh, from a weapon system that's that's on top of a Merkava tank. And so that was really the con- conclusive kind of evidence, um, in addition to a geolocation of the exact firing location from from where these these shells were, were fired, that could allow us to conclusively say that this was an Israeli tank using an Israeli weapon system um, fired from an Israeli location that, that hit those journalists on that day. And what about the drones? One of the things the reporters describe, well, they say there wasn't gunfire. They weren't, like, caught in the crossfire at that point. It was quiet. Um, that there were right. drones. Uh, they were all wearing their press gear. You know, you could see P-R-E-S-S. They said, I'm sure that they could see their faces that closely. Talk about the level of Israeli surveillance there. It's a really important uh, point and not one that should be overlooked. Again, these journalists did everything right. In the interviews that we conducted as well with our own teams that that, that were there, Atha al Sudani, where there's um, photographer Maher uh, Nazih, where there's, where there's video journalists who were also wounded on that day, they said we chose that location specifically, not just because we had a we had a clear view of the border area, which we wanted to be filming, but also because there were different positions along the border that had a clear view of us. And so nobody could then accuse us of embedding. 
betting with armed groups, doing something suspicious, you know, hiding behind a line of trees, anything like that. We were clearly visible from from all sides. And that was one of the key reasons they they chose that that location. So that's the kind of 360 on, on the grounds. But in all of the footage that we reviewed and in the eyewitness statements that we gathered as well from that day, everybody, everybody could mention and, and, and remembered hearing the sound of Israeli drones, surveillance drones overhead. That sound really has not left southern Lebanon over the past two months almost. There, there have been brief respites, but the residents of southern Lebanon are very, very accustomed to hearing that, that sound, to hearing the sound of surveillance drones above. And so what, what that tells us is, again, um, you know, Israel had such a clear view of the journalists, either from the air or from the different surveillance points that they have along the border. Um, and, you know, Merkava tanks as well have a very, very have a very long distance at which they can see quite clearly through through the scope. I believe it's up to, to nine kilometers, if I'm not mistaken. But either way, those journalists were about 1.3 kilometers from, from the border. They were clearly within the, the visible range that you could have from that scope. They had such a view of the area uh, uh, in three directions. I mean, this is a controversial question. Do you think Israel did not want them there? And what have they said? I mean, right afterwards, when there was tremendous outcry, they said they would look into it. Um, they said they were sorry it happened. They didn't take responsibility. What about now that the Reuters report is out, the Amnesty report is out, the Agence France Press report is out? We, at various points, Reuters— um from the very first moment, you know, from that night of, of Friday, October 13th, sought more details and more information from the Israeli military. So at various points, Reuters has gone back to the Israeli military and, and asked them, can you give us more information about what happened on that day? Can you tell us whether it was you that targeted them? If so, what were they suspected of doing or what was what was the reasoning? And we've we've gotten very little information. I mean, the, the IDF has told us just in response to our findings that they do not target journalists. Um, and we have gotten nowhere else beyond that. I mean, they have repeatedly said, obviously, when it comes to southern Lebanon, that this is a this is a conflict area, that there is kind of crossfire happening all the time. That's very dangerous. Um, but I think it's really important to, to, to remember, again, that these journalists were not embedded with any armed actors. They were there on that hilltop very, very far away, as, as Amnesty has really kind of meticulously laid out in its report as well. And as the eyewitnesses told us, very far away from any armed activities and from any cross crossfire. It's not like they were caught up between between two sides shooting at each other. It was a very quiet day and, and, and they were filming shelling at a distance. Um, and it's, it's important to note here as well that after our investigation was published, Reuters uh, editor-in-chief Alessandra Galoni has escalated her, her calls to, to Israel, not just to carry out an investigation, but to carry out a criminal investigation um, and to determine who exactly was responsible for those for those two strikes. Um, and, you know, that that really goes to show that there, there's something criminal that, that took place on that day. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 63 journalists and media workers have been killed since October 7th, including 56 Palestinian, four Israeli and three Lebanese journalists. Authorities in Gaza put the death toll higher, saying 86 Palestinian media workers have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, the Hamas attack. The Committee to Protect Journalists says no other war has taken so many journalists' lives in such a short time span. Uh, this according to CPJ data that's been gathered since 1992. Your final comments, and as we wrap up, Maya, um, you didn't just do an investigation of people you didn't know. 
You knew Aysam Abdullah well. This is a close-knit community, and it goes beyond Reuters. Um, journalists um, dealing with this all over the world, how many journalists are dying right now in Gaza and southern Lebanon. Um, what do you want us to remember about Aysam? Aysam was someone who did everything with a lot of passion and and integrity. And as we were carrying out this investigation, um, you know, I was trying to do it in the same way, just to, to carry, you know, to leave no stone unturned, to do this as as right as we possibly could and, and go as far as we possibly can with that investigation. And even journalists within Reuters who never met Isam were so moved by learning about him as they worked on this investigation and the way that he the way that he did his job, the care with which he approached every interview subject. Um, he treated everybody with so much humanity and with and with so much love. Um, he was really a model for us in in the Beirut Bureau for people who had been journalists even for longer than him um, and for people who were just starting out. He just took the time to teach everyone, to teach our interns, to teach everybody who was in the office how to look for a story, how to do a story justice. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we're all we're all trying to carry that with us every single day as we as we try to pick up the pieces in the office and, and keep covering what is continuing to be, you know, very active and bloody conflict around the region. I encourage people to go to our interview with Lema Al-Alrian, who is a dear friend of uh, Assam uh, in Lebanon. She works with Vice News. Maya Jabeli, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Reuters Bureau Chief for Lebanon co-wrote the new Reuters special report. Israeli tank fire killed Reuters journalist Assam Abdullah in Lebanon. Coming up, investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept on what he describes as the joint U.S.-Israel military operation in Gaza. And then we'll speak with one of the three Palestinian students, this one who attends Haverford College, and talk about what's happening on campus and that night, Thanksgiving, when he and his two dear friends from Ramallah were shot in Vermont. Stay with us. Music by Mashur Leila. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United States is becoming increasingly isolated as it continues to oppose calls for a Gaza ceasefire while sending more munitions to Israel. On Tuesday, the United States was one of just 10 nations to vote against a United Nations General Assembly resolution calling for a ceasefire. That vote came four days after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution for a ceasefire. This comes as the Biden administration has bypassed Congress to approve the sale of 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel. The sale 
valued at more than $106 million. We're joined now by the award-winning investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. His new piece is just out this morning, headlined, Joe Biden keeps repeating his false claim that he saw pictures of beheaded babies. But we're going to begin with your piece just before that, headlined, This is not a war against Hamas. Jeremy, you write, the events of the past week should obliterate any doubt that the war against the Palestinians of Gaza is a joint U.S.-Israeli operation. Take it from there. Well, you know, of course, it's no secret that for many decades, the United States has showered Israel with not just military and intelligence support, uh, but crucially political and I guess you could say moral cover for the amoral, immoral activities that Israel engages in uh, as it operates its apartheid state in the West Bank um, and its uh, repeated attacks against the people of Gaza. And, you know, when we want to talk about uh, Hamas and we want to talk about uh, threats that Israel faces, uh, uh, that it says it faces from uh, Gaza, we have to understand that this didn't begin on October 7th. Yes, the events of October 7th were horrifying and the facts as they exist, as we know them, are, are bad enough. And to have you know, Joe Biden uh, repeatedly making comments uh, that are based on completely fictitious photos that he claims to have saw of, uh, you know, 40 babies being beheaded. Um, then we understand that this is part of a propaganda campaign aimed at dehumanizing uh, the population of Gaza and uh, implying very strongly. Um, at, well, actually, Joe Biden has said that the people that the Israel's waging a war against animals. Um, this is all part of a dehumanization campaign, and and Joe Biden has elevated uh, some of the most uh, obscene lies that have been told. Uh, about not just about Palestinian people in general, but even about what Hamas did on October 7th. The, the, what we know is true is already horrifying enough. So I don't know, you know what the motive is for Biden to continuously say this. But to directly answer your question about it being a joint U.S. military operation, um, for decades the U.S. has done this. But in this particular war, on October 9th, you had the defense secretary, the defense minister of Israel, Yoav Gallan, say that there is going to be, that he had ordered a complete siege of the Gaza, Gaza Strip. He said there will be no electricity, there will be no food, no fuel, I'm quoting, everything is closed, we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. This is a genocidal phrase uh, from the Minister of Defense of the Israeli Armed Forces on October 9th. At that moment, the United States should have hit pause immediately on any support for Israel and said, we want to clarify that this is not going to be a, a war waged against the civilian population. Not only did the Biden administration not do that, they continued to offer political cover and rushing weapons there and giving uh, giving support to the most pernicious lies that Israel uh, was telling. And what we saw in the past days is that on the day that the United States stands alone in the world and vetoes the uh, extraordinary session of the United Nations Security Council calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, Antony Blinken uh, informs the Pentagon and Congress that he was circumventing congressional review processes to rush through 13,000 additional tank rounds that are part of a, a package of 45,000 rounds that uh, the U.S. is slated to give Israel. While he's doing that, he is in the middle of a PR tour around the world 
saying the United States cares about Palestinian civilians, cares about Palestinian lives, um, you know, wants to make sure that innocent people are not being uh, being killed. So you, you can take the words of the administration on the one hand, uh, where they portray themselves almost like a kind of um, friend trying to talk tough to uh, another friend who's doing something really wrong. And on the other hand, you can look at their actions, which is full support for a scorched earth campaign that has killed more than 18,000 people, 7,000 of whom are children, targets being, uh, hospitals being targeted and bombed, children being massacred, sadistic videos emerging of IDF soldiers, uh, not, not just killing and, um, and mutilating uh, Palestinian bodies, um, but also creating propaganda films uh, like we saw with the stripped down prisoners. And, and one in particular, Amy, one of the famous incidents that, uh, that occurred here is that Israeli forces gathered together dozens of men, stripped them to their underwear, and then bizarrely filmed them laying down guns. These are, these are almost completely naked men that somehow still have guns in their hands. And then they filmed them putting them down. And the man who was, was the main person that they filmed placing a rifle down has been identified as a civilian, not a member of Hamas. Um, but in the video, too, there's edits where in one uh, cut, he has the rifle in his right hand. In the other cut, he has the rifle in his left hand. What is clear here is that Israel made a totally sick and twisted propaganda video where they forced Palestinian men at gunpoint to be actors in this propaganda film playing armed Hamas members. The Biden administration is completely complicit in this. Joe Biden is co-signing pernicious lies uh, about the, the people of Gaza. He is distorting the already uh, devastating and horrifying facts of October 7th, and he's keeping the spigot of military uh, and intelligence support open for the Israelis. And by the way, the recent reporting, and you had the author of this on from 972 Magazine in Israel that talked about the gospel, this AI-fueled uh, assassination program in Israel, and that they uh, sometimes will kill hundreds of Palestinian civilians in pursuit of one alleged uh, Hamas member. Much of the intelligence that is being uh, fed to the Israelis is coming from the United States to be used to wage this war. So yes, this is a joint U.S. operation militarily and politically. I want to go to a recent White House press briefing, National Security Council Coordinator Admiral John Kirby claiming the U.S. was doing more than any other nation to alleviate suffering in Gaza. Tell me, name me one more nation, any other nation, that's doing as much as the United States to alleviate the pain and suffering of the people of Gaza. You can't. You just can't. And name another nation that is, that is doing more to urge the Israeli counterparts, our Israeli counterparts, to be as cautious and deliberate uh, as they can be in the prosecution of their military operations. You can't. That's John Kirby, Jeremy, your response. Okay. First of all, the United States has supplied an unending uh, quantity of gasoline for Israel to pour on the fire that it has started in Gaza. It is, it is an absolute obscenity for John Kirby to stand in front of the world and make such an audacious claim uh, that the United States is doing more to help the Palestinian civilians than any other nation on earth. But I'll give you a concrete list of, of some nation states that are doing more than the United States. Ireland, which has opposed this from the beginning, 
has rightly termed what Israel is doing what it is. Uh, the government of Spain, the government of Belgium even, has spoken out more forcefully than the United States. All of the nations that voted in the General Assembly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, and the United States and only nine other countries voted on Israel's side, um, all of those nations are doing more than the United States to try to help the Palestinian people. You know, you, you can you can uh, send Samantha Power on a propaganda visit to bring 36,000 pounds of aid and have all the cameras around filming her talking about it, while at the same time you're giving uh, Israel 2,000-pound bombs, you're giving them intelligence used for their scorched earth campaign, you're circumventing congressional processes to rush them new tank rounds. No, this is utterly obscene, and John Kirby should be entirely ashamed of himself for his conduct during this entire thing, Amy. The entire thing. John Kirby has been one of the most vicious propagandists for the worst excesses and crimes of the uh, U.S.-backed Israeli scorched earth campaign in Gaza. I want to ask you about a New York Times expose that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Israel just canceled a planned trip to Qatar uh, by the head of Mossad to resume hostage negotiations. Well, that's the latest news. Uh, his name is David Barnea. But this comes as The Times has published an expose headlined Buying Quiet Inside the Israeli Plan That Propped Up Hamas. It's about Israel secretly sending billions of dollars to Hamas over roughly a decade. The piece begins, quote, just weeks before Hamas launched the deadly October 7th attacks on Israel, the head of Mossad arrived in Doha, Qatar, for a meeting with Qatari officials. For years, the Qatari government had been sending millions of dollars a month into the Gaza Strip, money that helped prop up the, Mahaska, the Hamas government there. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel not only tolerated those payments, he encouraged them. And when the Qatari officials asked David Barnea, the head of Mossad, should we stop this? He said no. Jeremy Scahill, your response. Well, uh, what we know is at least going back to 2012, um, Netanyahu has embraced this strategy that um, Hamas should be propped up in Gaza. Um, it probably goes back much before that, but if we want to talk about concrete, provable facts. Um, and in 2019, there's a, a quote where uh, uh, Netanyahu is addressing his comrades in the Likud party. This is in 2019. And, and he said the following, quote, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. So what's going on here? Well, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't want an Israeli state. Um, and he wants to make sure that a no Palestinian alternative state. voice. He doesn't sorry, want that doesn't quite well. Yes. Well, he he's, he's also seems to be working very hard in that regard, too, because he's uh, he's he's making it less safe in the world for Jewish people by his actions. Um, and he is, uh, you know, if you if you read the Israeli press, there's an increasing amount of criticism that what Netanyahu is doing is actually going to make the citizens of Israel less safe in the world, not more safe. Um, but what what uh, Netanyahu wants to do is make sure that no political forces rise in Gaza or elsewhere in Palestine um, that can garner more support from the world in pursuit of being recognized as human beings, being recognized as a fully independent nation. Um, and so, of course, he wants to keep the, the money flowing to Hamas. It's very good for, uh, for his business, for his agenda. It's also very good for both the United States and the Israeli uh, war agenda and war industries. Uh, but the other part of this, Amy, is when, when we talk about groups like Hamas, beyond the fact that there's a documented history of Netanyahu, uh, for his own reasons, supporting the flow of money and the, uh, the, the grip on power of Hamas, um, you also have the reality that for 75 years, 
Israel has operated a murderous uh, campaign against the Palestinian people aimed at making sure they will never get an independent homeland. And when you do things as occurred in 2018 and 2019, like gunning down, repeatedly gunning down nonviolent protesters who participated in the weekly Friday Friday marches uh, on the Great March of Return, and you had a Haaretz uh, expose uh, where IDF soldiers confessed that they were in a competition to see how many kneecaps they could shoot of these nonviolent protesters. It's sickening. When you see how Palestinians are treated, when they do what the world or what others say they should do, oh, protest nonviolently, don't take up arms, they're gunned down by Netanyahu's forces. So why is there a group like Hamas? Why was there a group like the African National Congress? Why was there a group like the Irish Republican Army? Why would people support uh, vicious uh, uh, entities like Hamas? Well, because they've been stripped of every possible other means of resistance by their occupiers, by settler colonialist powers. So when we want to talk about why is there a Hamas, part of it is people like Netanyahu and Netanyahu personally supporting the rise of Hamas and, the, and sustaining Hamas. And the other part of it is 75 years of history of constantly massacring Palestinians and showing them that nonviolent protests also will not be tolerated. Jeremy, uh, we just have a minute, but I want to go to your new piece out today. Um, headline, Joe Biden keeps repeating his false claim that he saw pictures of beheaded babies. I want to go back to President Biden, October 11th, four days after October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel, um, uh, when he was speaking to a group of Jewish community leaders. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this a long time. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. I never thought I'd ever. Anyway. So that's President Biden. Um, the White House was forced to walk this back somewhat, but explain what he's talking about. Well, in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas-led attacks um, on October 7th, when journalists, uh, and you know, at first it was primarily Israeli journalists, went to the scene of some of the kibbutzes where uh, the massacres had taken place, uh, they began to hear stories from Israeli soldiers that there were decapitated babies and babies who were burned alive. And so uh, I-24 News in Israel, one of their reporters, uh, we believe was the first to report this and said that it was uh, it was based on uh, what Israeli soldiers had uh, had told her. And then that starts to spread like wildfire. CNN uh, then picks up the report. Um, CBS also uh, did a report uh, promoting uh, the claim that there were beheaded babies. Um, and then uh, as, as much more attention starts getting drawn to it, people start asking the Israeli government and Netanyahu's spokesperson then confirms uh, that this happened. And then a few hours later, you have uh, Joe Biden standing up and saying that he has personally seen photographs of it. Um, then when U.S. reporters started pushing on this and saying, you know, is Biden saying that the U.S. has independent evidence of this? Then they had to say, um, no, actually, uh, Joe Biden and no one in the administration has seen any photos. He was just referring to uh, the, the media reporting about it. And now the Israeli government doesn't make this claim at all anymore. In fact, when Netanyahu has appeared uh, alongside U.S. officials or when Tony Blinken has shown photos uh, by the Israeli government of the aftermath of the of the horrifying scene at the at the kibbutzes, he's never mentioned uh, beheaded babies. Uh, Netanyahu has said that they beheaded soldiers. Uh, but what 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 is really perplexing is that 
the established facts that we already understand are, are, are horrifying enough, enough. Why would the most powerful individual in the world find the need to repeatedly, not just once, Amy, he said it in October, he said it in November, and he said it a few days ago. He keeps saying that he has seen photos and then his, his advisors have to walk it back. Also, the Washington Post reported that before he first said that, in a meeting with his staffers, they warned him against including that in his speech because they said it's not verified. So what you have here is Joe, this is one of the most incendiary charges that has been made about those raids uh, led by Hamas on October 7th, this idea of beheaded babies. But if you look at the actual figures that have been released by Israel, and I want to be very precise here because it's very, very important. If you look at the actual figures, and I'm, I'm going to read this for you, Andy. This is, this is published in mainstream Israeli news outlets. They, they've said approximately 1,200 Israelis or Israeli residents were killed on October 7th. 274 of them were soldiers, 764 were civilians, 57 were police, 38 were local security guards. Among the civilians killed, there was a nine-month-old baby. She was the youngest, uh, Mila Cohen. She was shot, and this is horrifying, she was shot as her mother carried her. Her mother survived, but her father and other relatives were killed. So you had a nine-month-old that was killed, then you had 12 children between the ages of one and nine years old, and you had 36 children between the ages of 10 and 19 years old. Where does this story of 40 beheaded babies come from? Well, Israel has walked it back. The reporters have retracted it. Only Joe Biden is out there in the world continuing to insist that he somehow has seen photos of beheaded babies when not even Benjamin Netanyahu, who absolutely would be screaming it every day if it was true, isn't going that far. Jeremy Skeho, I want to thank you for being with us, senior reporter and correspondent. The Intercept will link to your pieces. Coming up, we go to the campus of Haverford College in Pennsylvania to speak with Kenan Abdel Hamid, one of the three Palestinian sh students shot over Thanksgiving weekend in Burlington. We'll also speak with the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, a Haverford student organizer calling for a ceasefire. Back in 20 seconds. People have the power by Patti Smith. The singer's recovering after she was taken to the hospital in Italy, but has canceled the rest of her tour. Patti Smith has also called for a Gaza ceasefire. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at student protests calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. In one of many actions nationwide, 41 students at Brown University were arrested Monday at a sit-in demanding the school divest its endowment from weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and United Technologies. The school charged the students with willful trespass within school buildings. Meanwhile, students at Haverford College just ended a peaceful week-long sit-in yesterday of the school's administrative offices. Some 100 Haverford students now face the threat of disciplinary action. One of the students who joined the protest has just returned to campus. 
Hinan Abdel Hamid is a junior at Haverford who was shot two weeks ago, along with his two friends, by a white man in Burlington, Vermont. All three are of Palestinian descent. Tassin Ahmed was shot in the chest, and Hisham Ortani was paralyzed from the chest down after a bullet lodged in his spinal cord. He is a student at Brown University. The three grew up and went to school together in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. We are joined by Kinan Abdelhamid at Haverford College and by his fellow student Ellie Barron, a Haverford College junior and organizer with Students for Peace, who participated in the sit-in. She's granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Kinan, um, thank you so much for being with us. Um, what you and your two close friends went through—I mean, you grew up in Ramallah, went to the Friends' School there, visiting together at Thanksgiving, uh, Hisham's grandmother and uncle. Tell us what happened then. And thank goodness you're able to go back to school, having been shot yourself. But then talk about what you're calling for. Um, why were you just walking what you had just were going to dinner at, um, at Hashem's family's house? Um, we were originally going to go straight to dinner uh, at Hashem's family house. But before going in, we usually decided to go on a walk. And on the walk back, when we're going to have that late dinner, I guess. Yeah, that's when we saw. And what did you see? What happened? Explain what happened to the three of you. Well, he was standing on a porch of a house, and he turned around and saw us, immediately ran down the steps of the porch, pulled out a pistol, and started shooting. Uh, Tahseen was the first to be wounded, then Hisham, and during that time I was able to uh, run, but ACM staff hit me while I was running. And what is the latest? We talked to Hisham's mother, uh, someone you know well, Elizabeth Price, who had flown in to be uh, with her son. Um, at the time we talked, it looked like he would be paralyzed from the chest down. Do you have any latest information? He's in rehab now. Um, I'm not willing to speak on his condition now. That's uh, him and his family's decision. So talk about you coming back to Haverford and what that's meant and the level of activism. And we see now at Brown, where Hisham went to school, um, where he goes to school, 41 students have been arrested. Talk about what's happening at Haverford. Yes, um, what's happening in Haverford, the student activism has been absolutely astounding and amazing. It's very heartwarming to see a collective body of students stand against uh, a blatant genocide of uh, my people and the humanity in that, as well as I wouldn't like to distinguish it being only students. There are different faculty members here that uh, are, in fact, at least pro-Palestinian when it comes to this case. Um, it's overwhelming to see the humanity. I'm very happy it happened. And uh, hopefully uh, sometime different people with different platforms would call for a ceasefire. I want to bring Ellie Barron into the conversation. You're a Haverford junior, uh, granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. Talk about what you're demanding at Haverford. You all just finished occupying the admin offices, threatened with arrest yesterday. Is that right? So we occupied 
uh, Founders Hall, which is the main administrative building. And if we didn't leave by yesterday morning, we were threatened with a dean's panel, which could include expulsion. Um, and we have been calling for a ceasefire uh, for specifically Haverford College President Wendy Raymond to release a public statement in support of a ceasefire. And this has precedent at Haverford College. President John Coleman in 1969 wrote a letter to President Nixon and galvanized the signatures of 79 other college presidents demanding that President Nixon oppose the Vietnam War. And so we're demanding that President Raymond follow in his footsteps in this tradition of activism and using leadership in order to create change in the world, which is very much in line with our Quaker values and call for a ceasefire and call for our elected officials uh, to support peace in Palestine. Can you talk about um, the, the accusations that when you call for ceasefire now, uh, when you hold a Palestinian flag, when you wear a kafia, that you're expressing anti-Semitism? Talk about your own family history and how you came to the views you have, Ellie. Absolutely. So anti-Semitism has been something that's weaponized. We uh, have seen accusations of anti-Semitism on our campus that have delegitimized Palestinian organizing. And I frankly find accusations of anti-Semitism to be horrific considering what my family went through in the Holocaust. There is real anti-Semitism out there. There are real threats to Jewish people. There, these threats have been experienced by my family. So many members of my family died in the Holocaust. And it's absolutely horrifying that claims um, of anti-Semitism are being attributed to criticism, criticism of Israel. Uh, and that just delegitimatizes anti-Semitism. Um, and de sorry, that delegitimatizes um, actual threats to Jewish people and actual anti-Semitism in this world. So today, a uh, rally is being held as we speak at Haverford? So the rally was yesterday, and we had uh, the rally to conclude our sit-in uh, in the administrative building. And although the sit-in is over, uh, the calls for Haverford College and so many other higher education institutions to take action and to leverage their power uh, for change in the world and in order to have a ceasefire uh, have not ended. So just because the sit-in has ended, hundreds of students yesterday at the rally called for Haverford College to create change and to call for a ceasefire and leverage their power. And, Kenan, you started by talking about how moved you are by the Haverford protests. You've got the last word right now. What you want to see happen uh, at Haverford. You also just spoke at Bryn Mawr, didn't you? Uh, another college nearby. Uh, yeah, this college is part of the system, BICO. So Bryn Mawr and Haverford are quite linked together. If there was a final message I'd like to say, it's to kind of I'd say dismantle this uh, we know better mentality with a lot of uh, people I've interacted with. It's important for both sides to have an open mind and to engage with uh, students and faculty to have pro-Palestinian views uh, as just like other people. We they're not they're not misinformed. They know what they're talking about. Palestinians in their own rights, a lot of them that were raised in Palestine are experts about the history, the atrocities they've endured and seen in their lifetime. 
and what has led up to the events of um, October 7th. It's important to underscore that a lot of people that uh, were born and raised here, God bless them, uh, simply don't know as much and uh, should engage with an open mind and learn more before uh, stifling discourse regarding uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict, especially Palestinians uh, who are outcrying for a ceasefire or are genuinely witnessing their people being exterminated. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Uh, Kenan Adel Hamid, again, a shot Thanksgiving weekend with his two friends, Tassin and Hisham Awartani, uh, who at this point is paralyzed from the chest down. You can go to democracynow.org and see our interview with Elizabeth Price, uh, Hisham's mother. And I also want to thank Ellie Barron, um, a junior at Haverford, involved with calling for ceasefire. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Felstein, Nagad Zadur, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Jay Marie Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nogueira. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.